The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. It's one of the most ancient ceremonies in the world, faithfully observed through the generations by the Jewish people. Passover is still a deeply spiritual time in the nation of Israel, and we invite you to join us in Jerusalem for six nights of our 22nd Convocation. Accommodation and events will be at a five-star hotel with days of touring in the Holy City and beyond. We'll be observing a traditional Passover meal and preparing for the events of Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday that immediately follow our Convocation Week. For details, check the events page of our Jerusalem Channel website. Politicians and eco-warriors claim that the Earth is in peril and we must save this planet for generations to come. We're told to confess our green sins and to repent for our oversized carbon footprint. While the Bible does instruct us to be good stewards of the Earth, nowhere in the Bible is there the thought that this planet will continue in its present state indefinitely. On the contrary, the Bible teaches that mankind has a relatively short lease on this earth and then the entire universe will be renovated by fire. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Shalom, I'm Christine Darg. The environmental movement is reaching new heights of frenzy. Taking care of animals and endangered species is certainly biblical, but everything is topsy-turvy when the only living creatures who don't seem to have protected rights are our unborn human babies. We need to maintain balance while understanding just where this planet is headed. Biblical law provides answers on issues such as animal welfare, species preservation, pollution, and sanitation. Cruelty to animals is prohibited in the Torah and is considered by the Jewish people as one of the seven laws of Noah covering universal morality. And according to a Jewish midrash, when a fruit-bearing tree is chopped down, a voice is heard from one end of the world to the other. Well, from the beginning in the book of Genesis, God called us to be good stewards of the earth. And there's one country in the world that ended the 20th century with more trees than it began with. Despite having to contend with constant warfare, the Jewish people have devoted over a century to greening the Holy Land with reforestation. In the beginning of the 1900s, the Holy Land's indigenous forests were denuded. Mark Twain's travel book, The Innocents Abroad, published in 1869, described the Holy Land as a desolate country whose soil is rich enough, he said, but it's given over wholly to weeds, a silent, mournful expanse. 
Twain called the land a desolation. But how times have changed and the situation has been reversed. When Israel declared independence in 1948, there were fewer than five million trees in the Holy Land. But today Israel has over 200 million trees. Israel has also worked hard to reintroduce animals to the land that had been hunted to extinction. For example, according to the World Wildlife Fund, the fallow deer was thought to be completely extinct until a herd of 25 was found in the 1950s in Iran. Israel has been on a continuous mission to restore its diverse wildlife. As of 2015, Israel now maintains more than 400 nature reserves, protecting 2,500 species of indigenous wild plants, 400 species of birds, 70 species of mammals, 20 species of fish. So in this regard, Israel is a model to help other nations learn how to protect natural resources. In fact, all over the world, teams of Israelis are helping many countries learn drip irrigation and to harness solar energy. During a recent media summit, we met with Orthodox businessmen who go from Israel to assist pastors and bishops in Africa to develop solar energy. When it comes to fossil fuels, Israel has made a concerted effort to use renewable energy. All over Israel, solar panels are used to heat water. And I think it's interesting that the Torah orders the creation of pasture lands, which amount to green belts around cities. In fact, you can read God's green strategy in his decrees in Numbers chapter 35. And a most dramatic ecological gesture is the biblical practice called the Shemitah, which is the command for a seventh year sabbatical rest for the environment, when all fields must lie fallow. By faith, many Orthodox Jews in the land of Israel are now observing the Shemitah, allowing the land to rest. The Jewish people pray for rain and they offer blessings for all manner of natural phenomena, such as the sighting of a rainbow, shooting stars, and seeing the first blossoms of a tree. While the beauty of nature brings honor and glory to God and is intended to inspire worship of our Creator, but many people today are going to the extreme in environmentalism that amounts to virtual worship of the creation rather than the Creator. And Romans 1.25 describes this reversal as exchanging the truth about God for a lie. Many conservative believers view environmental pacts such as the Paris Agreement on Climate Change as accords that would help to pave the way for a world leader to form a global government. One popular eschatologist has denounced climate change as a scam used to, he said, consolidate the governments of the world into a coalition that may someday facilitate the rise of the coming world dictator known as the Antichrist. Well, I suppose the thing that most concerns me about environmental activism is that a lot of evangelical energy, time and resources are being dissipated 
into efforts that manage a planet that's going to be perfectly managed when Jesus returns. And I believe his return is sooner than most think, even if they believe he's going to return at all. So where are our evangelical priorities? We have the Great Commission to fulfill in a relatively limited short time. And we know time is short because the nation of Israel has been regathered in the Middle East just as was prophesied for the last days. In fact, Jesus will reign from Jerusalem for a thousand years and then, according to the Bible's prophetic timeline, after Jesus' millennial reign, this planet will be renovated by fire and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Sadly, because professing believers don't really know their Bibles nor the signs of the times, there's a growing preoccupation with environmental activism. Prominent Hollywood stars campaign about our suffering planet, calling the environment the greatest moral crisis of our time. Really? The greatest moral crisis? What about the moral crisis of infanticide? What about the moral crisis of growing anti-Semitism? Harrison Ford, whose films have reportedly made more money at the box office than any other actor in history, has a long track record of environmental activism, and he decries climate change deniers. And many American politicians also claim that our planet is in peril while promoting environmental and social liberalism. Not surprisingly, there's even a trendy Bible for environmentalists, the Green Bible, printed on recycled paper with a cotton and linen cover. And all passages pertaining to the earth or the environment are printed in soy-based green ink. The definitive Green Movement Bible claims that God is green with essays by leading conservationists and theologians, including the Pope, and a foreword by Archbishop Desmond Tutu. It's all aimed at trying to get us to read the Bible through a green lens. Well, I have to say that it concerns me when I see the Bible manipulated and edited to emphasize various points of view. It's a dangerous practice to add to the Word of God. Recently, a group of 20 feminist theologians released their own edition of the Bible, dubbed a women's Bible, to reinterpret what the translators characterize as paternalistic and biased translations of the Bible. The lead authors of the new work, Professors Laurienne Savoy and Elizabeth Parimitier, told a French news agency that they were sick of their faith being used to justify misogyny and subjugation of women. Savoy is a professor at the University of Geneva. She reportedly told the French press that feminist values in reading the Bible are not incompatible, but the translators also claimed that certain aspects of the Bible should not be taken as the literal word of God. Rather, they're hopeful that the women's Bible will be used as a tool to empower women. Well, on the other hand, if you check the internet, there are all sorts of Bibles formatted just for men. Additionally, there are now many gender-neutral Bibles. These are called egalitarian translations because they eliminate masculine references. The aim is to prohibit discrimination against women. 
but critics say the result unfortunately becomes a blind conformity to the radical feminist agenda and to political correctness. The one-way bias against males is clear. When the gender-neutral translations consistently preserve female examples, but often neutralize references to males. But can we tamper with God's word and modify words in the Bible that were clearly meant to be masculine? This can be dangerous. And I'll mention more biblical references to that danger in a moment. For example, in the more traditional NIV, the New International Version, Psalm 34:19 reads, a righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all of his bones. Not one of them will be broken. And in the Gospel of John 19, 36, it clearly says that this Psalm 34:19 is a prophecy foretelling an aspect of the crucifixion of the Messiah. Although Jesus was crucified, none of his limbs were broken, although the legs of the two thieves crucified next to him were broken. This is an important distinction because the Torah stipulates that none of the limbs of the Passover sacrifice must be broken. And Jesus was the Lamb of God who took upon himself the sins of the world. John chapter 19 records that Jesus died on the Passover's day of preparation. And the next day was a high Sabbath. In order that the crucified bodies would not remain on the crosses, defiling the Sabbath, the religious leaders asked the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, to have the legs broken of the crucified victims. That barbaric practice would cause the victims to die by asphyxiation, and then their bodies could be removed before the Sabbath. So the Roman soldiers broke the legs of the two men who were crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. So they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water flowed out. John wrote, the one who saw it testifies to this, and his testimony is true, so that you also may believe. And then, verse 36 of John 19 makes a commentary on the Hebrew Scriptures, saying, Now these things happened so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. But now let's consider the emasculated today's new international version of John 19:36, which reads like this. The righteous may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers them, not him, but them from them all. He protects all their bones. Not one of them will be broken. So you see, by distorting the original text and by removing the singular masculine references, making the verse generic, this prophecy about the Messiah is substantially obscured. But now let's turn to Revelation chapter 22 towards the end of the New Testament in verse 18, where we're given a stern and very sobering warning. The verse says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. 
And then the next verse goes on to say, if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city. And in the Hebrew scriptures, Proverbs 36 warns bluntly, do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. And of course, the prohibition to meddle with God's word goes all the way back to the Torah. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 2. It says, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. The same prohibition against addition and subtraction is also repeated in Deuteronomy 12.32, where God says, everything I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians in the New Testament, chapter 1, that he was astonished that the Galatians were quickly turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but he warned that there are people who will distort the Word of God. As one theologian has rightly stated, the modern church has largely done away with the language of sin and salvation, replacing it with gooey postmodern verbiage that appeals to a generation raised on psychobabble and self-help seminars. So often I think about Paul's vehement words. He said, if any person or even an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the Bible, let him be accursed. Wow. 2 Timothy 3.16 is a verse that upholds the validity of the word of God for all time. It says that all scripture is breathed by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. You see, this world is a temporary boot camp for the training of eternally redeemed sons and daughters of God. So let's look at one of these God-breathed passages in the Bible concerning our disposable planet and our disposable universe, concepts that are foreign to environmentalists because they simply don't know this Word of God. It was by the spirit of revelation that the apostle Peter knew that false teachers and scoffers would deny the notion that God will settle accounts someday and punish sin. So let's look at Peter's prediction and commentary in 2 Peter chapter 3, where he says, Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers are going to come with their mocking and scoffing, following after their own lust, saying, Where is the promise of Jesus' coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning. And they will maintain that it will escape their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and that the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed with floodwaters. But the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved, the apostle Peter says, for fire, not a flood, but for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly persons. And he said, don't let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. 
And the Lord is not slow about his promise, but he's patient toward us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. But then he goes on to say, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and all of his works will be burned up. And now in this chapter, here's a special message for the environmentalists. Peter went on to say, since all these things are to be destroyed by fire, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, on which account the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt, he said, with intense heat. But according to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's take a Sela moment here. You see, all of man's efforts to try to save this planet that's groaning under God's curse and that's going to be burned up are certainly not our paramount responsibility. Yes, we should take care of the land. We should subdue the earth. But when God's plans of redemption are fully accomplished, this earth is going to be renovated by fire. So let's not believe the lie that this planet will go on and on indefinitely without a future period of judgment and renovation. What one man of God has said has been very helpful to me. He said, false teachers refuse to face true history. They have become revisionist historians. They deny all kinds of evidence and they make up their own history without the remotest possibility of divine intervention. Why? So that they can live their immoral lives. But in the meantime, we live on the top of the crust of an inferno. 10 miles below our feet is molten lava. Genesis 19 was a preview when two wicked cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, were destroyed by fire and brimstone at the command of God. At the second coming, 2 Thessalonians 1.8 declares that the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in blazing fire, taking vengeance on those who don't know God and who don't obey the gospel. You see, when he comes in the rapture, he's coming in the clouds. But at the second coming to judge the earth, he's coming in blazing fire. Well, you can deny the truth of God's word and bury your head in the sands of environmentalism or you have the choice to believe the gospel and to prepare for his return by participating in the Great Commission and spreading the good news of salvation. Some may ask, how can we be sure that Jesus will return? Well, first of all, this word of God guarantees it. In Acts chapter 1, after the Lord's resurrection and his post-resurrection ministry on earth for 40 days, a cloud received him out of their sight. And while the apostles looked steadfastly toward heaven as Jesus ascended, suddenly two men stood next to them dressed in white apparel. Were these two men angels or were they the two witnesses who will have a ministry in the future as described in Revelation chapter 11? That's just my speculation. However, we do know that these two witnesses dressed in white made a definite 
statement and promise to the apostles. They said, you men of Galilee, why do you stand here gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who's taken up from you into heaven shall come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Have you ever paused to consider that after Jesus' resurrection, he never appeared to unbelievers? Up to 500 believers saw him at one time and testified that he was risen from the dead. But there's no record that Jesus ever appeared to unbelievers. However, in the future, everybody is going to see him. The skeptics, the mockers, the rebels, and all those who try to hide from him. Because his glory will be displayed to one and all. As conquering Lord and King of Kings, the Savior who was mocked, who was put to death in a public display of rebellion against God, he's going to return in full view of the entire world. Revelation 1-7 declares, every eye will see him. The resurrection of the Lord was a supernatural vindication, but his return to planet Earth will be a spectacular vindication. We can also be sure that Jesus will return because the Lord himself made constant references to his second coming. For example, on the night of his betrayal, Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 14, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and receive you to myself. Also during his trial, when Jesus was put under oath, he boldly acknowledged his deity with a declaration of his second coming in the most dramatic scriptural terms, quoting the book of Daniel. Jesus testified to the high priest, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. In the meantime, as Acts 15, 14 explains, God is busy taking from among the Gentile nations a people for his name and gathering his elect into one universal body, the invisible church. And in the meantime, true believers are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus the Messiah. I find it so exciting that Israel's future also guarantees the second coming of Jesus. In Paul's day, as Gentiles were being gathered into the church, the Apostle Paul reminded the former Gentiles in Romans 11 that you being a wild olive tree were grafted in amongst the Jewish people and become a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. So don't boast against the Jews, he said. But he added that the time is coming when the natural branches, the Jewish people, will be grafted back into God's olive tree, a supernatural phenomenon connected with the soon return of Jesus. In fact, Romans 11:26 is a beautiful Bible promise that all of Israel shall be saved. And one of my favorite verses, Zechariah 12:10 prophesies that Israel's revival will begin when by the spirit of revelation the Holy Spirit is poured out and they will mourn over the one whom they pierced. Finally, it has to be added that Jesus will return because he has to deal completely with Satan. Satan, who's been running amok in this world, will be chained. And after the millennial rule of Messiah, Satan will be cast into an eternal lake of fire. I want to say very urgently that Jesus could come at any moment. 
So you may be wondering, what do I have to do to be sure that I'm ready? Well, first of all, we just have to be willing to forsake the things that are wrong in our lives and that contradict God's Word. Are you willing to live for the Savior and put Him first? If your answer is yes, you can surrender to Him right now and receive such a great salvation in the name of Jesus. Salvation that includes healing and deliverance. And isn't it a relief to know that you don't have to save the planet? That's not really our mandate. Instead, let's give priority to sharing the gospel and doing the exploits of the Lord, praying for the sick, rescuing the dying and the innocent. After all, the Great Commission in Mark chapter 16 says, Go into all of the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's more than enough of the environment for me to try to save. And the Bible promises that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Hallelujah. Well, if I can encourage you anymore, do stay in touch on social media or at our website at exploits.tv where you can sign up to receive our free color magazine, Exploits. A reminder, also our Jerusalem Channel app is available free to download from your app store. And so until next time, earnestly contending for the faith and praying always for the peace of Jerusalem, I'm Christine Darg. Shalom and Maranatha.